It's a wonderful thing to hear uh, the Word of God read in other languages. Millions of people speak that language, uh, Tagalog, and they just live in another part of the world. But our language uh, would sound as strange to them as their sounds uh, uh, to us. It's no secret, and it's not hidden. It may be a mystery, but it's no secret at all that grace is one of the overarching themes of the Word of God. Uh, From cover to cover, this unmerited, unearnable, inaccessible, undeserved commodity that God offers uh, to sinners. This is absolutely fabulous. You remember when Adam and Eve fell in, in, in the garden, what was their default setting? They hid themselves. They were afraid of God. They made coverings of leaves for themselves. What was God's first move? He came down and he said, where are you? Where are you? He's looking graciously for his creatures. There were only two. It was Adam and Eve. And all through the Bible then, that's what you have. You, you, you have a gracious, sinner-seeking God. And when you come to the New Testament, you read in that most familiar verse, in John 3.16, and, and also verse 17, what the Father was doing for God, for the Father, thusly, Love the world. That's what it literally says. So is just a little bit ambiguous, but it's extremely popular. Thusly means in this way, in this manner. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, but that through the son, the world might be saved. Amen. And so this unimaginable, unexpected, unthinkable... I just wonder, would we even have the word grace in any language at all if, if God had not shown it? I, I, I can't prove that. But this unparalleled grace that God offers to us and, and to the whole world, to a whole world of sinners is unprecedented in any other religion. Every other religion 
wants you to do something. It wants you to earn something. It wants you to keep the law. It wants you to travel. It wants you to burn incense. It wants you to bow down. This is a religion. This is God's religion. He wants you to come. He just wants you to come. That's what he says. A judge that lets somebody go out of the kindness of his heart or because he has paid the fine, he says to the defendant, you may go. You may go. You're free to go. But God the judge, when he forgives our sins, he doesn't say, go. He says, come. Come, you can live in my house. I'll be a father to you. I'll bless you. I'll give you an inheritance. It's so different. There's just nothing like it. So, we have this banquet, this marriage banquet, where the outline can look like this. Number one, there is a gracious king, and he is giving a wedding feast, and it's all about his son. It's like John 3.16. The king is doing these things just like God the Father is sending his son. There is a great rejection of a repeated invitation. It, it comes in three ways. Not coming, although you had a previous invitation, you had plenty of time to, to get me on your calendar. No reason is actually given. The second, they excuse themselves because their priorities are mixed up. One's got a farm, another's got a business. Two great categories of distraction. And then the third, they blatantly and violently refuse. They, they actually commit murder. And then in the third place, you'll see a great judgment against them. And in the fourth place, you'll see a great second plan, plan B, that works with tremendous success. And you'll see in the midst of that good plan, there is a great mistake. A great mistake is made, it, is made that, that's an indication of of a great sin and then you'll see a great conclusion it is the conclusion uh, for all mankind well number one then a great and gracious king is giving a wedding feast uh, for his son that's verses one through three again and again Jesus spoke to them in, in in parables, the them in this context are are the Jews, it are the scribes and and the Pharisees. Matthew twenty one, the very last verse says, when the chief priests and, and Pharisees heard his parables, 
they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to, to be a prophet. They knew about kings. They knew that a king had a, a position, that he had prestige, that he had, that, that he had a palace, he had provisions, and that he had a posterity. He had a son. He had sons and daughters, perhaps. They knew about this. But like in, 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 in John 3.16, the son is mentioned as the central figure in this great feast. The king, no doubt, represents God, the great giver of, of, of the feast. He seeks the honor and pleasure and reward of his son. He is the sender. He is the giver. He is the author of th the invitation. He is the one who has limitless power and, and provision. He can take care of everything. He's made every preparation for the sinner to be forgiven and to enjoy an e eternal feast with pleasures and privileges in, in heaven all coming from that highest position that God has. There is no cover charge. Just come as you are. You don't have to pay for anything. In Haggai 2.8, God makes it clear, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, how is it met with then? In the second place, there is a great rejection. You can view this rejection as, as three different groups or you can just simply uh, view them as, 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 as the large group of, of Jews with the scribes and, and Pharisees and high priests. I, I personally like the second option. There's, there's just one great rejection with three different manifestations. The king had invited a group of people by sending his servants. I don't know if, if they had invitations in their hands or it was just a verbal invite to them. But they were dressed like the king's servants. And they gave plenty of notice uh, to this group of people. And, and yet they, di they didn't come. You read in the text, not even one came. They refused it. They despised the invitation. They were not interested. They were disrespectful. They depreciated the preparations that had been made. And perhaps they doubted the sincerity of that offer. But, but the king was dead serious. And he would, he, they dishonored his son. They didn't think it, it was worth it. When they got the invitation, they just went. Isn't that terrible? 
Isn't that horrible? They, they just, or, or if, if they got something in, in their hand and they actually read it, they just went like this. It doesn't seem like a great sin, but when you see it like that, you know it's, it, it is rejection. They reject the best union, the closest place to heaven, if this is God's invitation to the Jews, the peace and, and the rest and the joy and the happiness. They just go, I'm happy without God. I, I, I don't need God. Well, you see, the king is relentless. In verse 4, you see the, the king repeats the invitation and the certain joy-filled offer uh, that he has. He's a super giving king. In verse 4 it says, and, and again he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. These are all, these are all, all plural nouns. I've got an a, a, a abundance for you. He says, everything is ready. Appetizers, comfortable seating, a super clean, well appointed dining hall with drinks and fine place settings, comfortable seats, whatever dessert you want to have. Oh, we'll have servants waiting on you. It, it's a royal feast worthy of my one and only son. But you see, in verse 5, they paid no attention. Why didn't they pay attention? It said one off to his farm and another to his business. There were country workers and there were city workers. There were outside guys. There were inside guys. They, they had these idols. It's okay to have a farm. It's okay to have a business. It's okay to care about these things. But if you put those things above the invitation to enjoy God, who, who, who will give you treasures forevermore, you've made a terrible, terrible misjudgment. You, you've got the wrong priorities. You can have all of this world's goods and not have Christ and have nothing at all. You've got nothing that you can take with you. You can have very little of this world's goods, like, like the kind of people that, that God has given me the privilege to visit and to minister to who have nothing but will share everything they have. But they got Jesus and they have everything. And they are happy. They are, they are rejoicing. You can't figure out that mystery if you don't have the grace of God in your life. You've got to want to know these things. Well, so there's that group. And then you see in verse 6, there is the rest. You've got the ones who ignored it and didn't pay attention and just tossed it aside. You've got the ones that are distracted by this world. And then you've got the ones who, who, who are, are violent. That's what the Jews did. 
mainly it was the Jewish leadership. It, it was the chief priests and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 6 says, while the rest seized his serpents, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Uh, you can listen to Jesus. You can hear what he says about them. In Matthew 23 and verses 32 through 35, he says this, Fill up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that you may come so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So you have these neglectors, you have these uh, distracted, wrongful prioritizers, these violent persecutors, they are the Jews, and they are us. That's who we are. We are by nature, as our, as our brother testified to, we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We are sons and daughters of disobedience. That's who we are. We are those who have darkened un understandings. We are idolaters. These are, these are the people, this, this is the people group that God chooses his sons and daughters out of. That's who we are. We're not better than the Jews. In, in, in some ways, we're worse than they are because we have more revelation. We, we, we sin against more light. Uh, Proverbs 29, 18 says, without revelation, uh, people run wild. Uh, but the one who follows divine instruction will be happy. See, this is the insanity of sin. The insanity of sin r refuses what is so far and away so much better and goes for these temporal pleasures that are passing. They're passing, but they don't believe that. They want to live as long as they can. We're not afraid of the coronavirus, if you are a believer. Because if God wants me to have it, and he wants me to die from it, I'll be the happiest man on earth. Spurgeon says, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Sudden death, for the Christian, sudden death is sudden glory. Isn't that right? <laughs> That's right. Well, you see, the third heading then is the great and just judgment against them. In verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops 
and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. God is, is represented as being righteous and merciful and gracious, but he is also just. All the armies belong to God. Maybe you didn't know that. But God says, woe to Assyria. My rod, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury against a godless nation. I send them. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like, like mire in the streets. That's Isaiah 10 and verses 5 through 6. The Romans are his army too. He owns the Roman army. And what happened in 70 AD? What happened? The Romans came and they captured the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the city. Both the city and the temple the Roman army was led by Emperor Titus with Tiberius Julius Alexander, who was the second in, in command. They besieged and captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it. Jesus said, there will not be one stone upon another stone. It took about four months, but, but on September 8th, uh, uh, 70 AD, they were destroyed. That's what the parable is teaching. Well, there is, in the fourth place then, a great second plan uh, uh, that the king has. Of course, God never has plan B. God always has plan A. He never has to change his mind. But, but, but under this human kind of similitude we have here, what you see is there is a relentless king. He, 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 he has tried three times. He's prepared everything. He's not a liar. He's not a deceiver. You can see his palace. You can see the dining hall. You can see all of this. And, and, and yet no one will come. Well, then he says to his servants in, in verse 8, in, in verses 8 through 10. The wedding, the wedding fe feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They weren't fitted for the... They were, they were rejectors. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to, to the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and, and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is a representation of the gospel going to the Gentiles. We don't know how many servants there were or, or how, how far they went or how long they were gone, but we do know this. It was universal. It was undistinguishing. They took those that were outward sinners, morally corrupt, and they took the people that were considered good, who were morally upright, that, their, that, that his hall could be filled. There was room for everyone. 
There are no exclusions. If you're not a Christian now, it's not because God won't have you. It's because you won't have him. You've excluded yourself. You're not willing to come. You don't want to come. Right now, you are deciding something. If you are outside of Christ, you're, you're saying, I am going to come. Or you're saying, I'm not coming. I'm waiting. That makes us weep. <laughs> because you don't know how long you're going to live. And you know how gracious God has been. And how he has blessed your life. That's what he's done. Well, you see, in the fifth place, there's a man who makes a terrible mistake. In this harvest that is so plentiful. And this Lord of the harvest has sent out his servants to gather it. But when the king came in, in verses 11 through 13, the, the king came to look at the guests and he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. There was only one person who was not properly dressed. He could have been properly dressed because the king provided the wedding garments to his guests. It was a gift from the king. And it was not expected that people that are on who are on roads and in faraway places would be able to bring with them everything they needed but he blames the man he finds fault with the man not with the servants who were passing out the garments he doesn't blame the other guests who might have said to you where's your wedding garment you know, it, it'll, it'll cost you nothing. Just, just go up to the counter. He's, he's, he's got all sizes. You can be dressed properly. But he prided himself that he, was, that he was dressed well enough. And that he might not be noticed in, in this larger crowd. He needed something that was not his own. He needed something to be given to him. But he didn't want anything given to him. He thought he was fine just the way he was. He needed that alien righteousness, that righteousness that comes from Christ. That's what he needed. That's what he symbolizes. And, and, and there are people in all kinds of churches who, who, who right now today who, who think they've got su sufficient righteousness in themselves. But the, but the righteousness they need is the perfect one that comes from Jesus. As Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 61.10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? Why? Before he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You, you can read that in, in Isaiah 61.10. It's the righteousness that Paul describes as putting on.
the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that in, in Romans 13, 14. Or as, as he says in uh, Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized in, in, into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you who are unified to his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, you have put on Christ. Revelation 19 and 6 through 8 says, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. The marriage feast of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, fine linen, bright and pure. And that means there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, you have, you, you have the great conclusion then in just a few minutes we have left. He says, many are called. But few are chosen. The many are this enormous group who passively ignore the invitation. They are the autonomous, independent people, self-sufficient. They are the ones who are enslaved to distraction and, and, and have wrong priorities. They, they want profit. They want possessions. They want prestige. They want pleasure. And, and then there's also one other that's not in, in this parable. It, it is the unreached peoples, the unengaged peoples, the peoples who have never heard the name of Jesus. Or if they've heard the name of Jesus, they don't know what the gospel is. There's those people too. Oh, there's, there's so many. What does Jesus says, say? He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it will be many. That's what he says. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But regardless of how few there are, I want to encourage you how few, how, how it's always been a remnant. We don't know how, how much longer we'll have to wait for Christ's return. But, but we know this, in, in the end, when John looked, he says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on, on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, Peter says in Second uh, Peter 2, but, but, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We'll see what God does. God always does 
or what is best. But I don't want anyone to be troubled that many are called and few are, are chosen. Listen to me now. You have been chosen. God has chosen you and seen to it that you have been made in his image and that you know at least two things. You know that it was divine power, e eternal power, and you know his divine nature. And you know more about God. He, he, he has brought you under the sound of the gospel. You've got a connection with other Christians that you didn't choose for yourself. You're born into a Christian family. You've got Christian friends. Right now in this room, you are surrounded by Christians. And you know that they're Christians. You know that, that they love Jesus and they want to please the Lord. You know you've been chosen for that. You've been chosen to know what the gospel is. You, you've been told that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that he worked out a perfect righteousness, and, 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 and that he died a substitutionary death. He died in the place of sinners, absorbing the wrath of God. And you know from Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The reason that you're not, you've been chosen for all of this. All of it is yours. But you have not called upon the name of the Lord. You have not trusted in Jesus. You've got to do that. He's chosen you for all of these advantages. All of these things he's given to you freely. The invitation is sincere. He can fulfill it and he will fulfill it. You could get a testimony from every single Christian in here. If we had the time, we could have every one of them come up. It'd blow you away. The grace of God in people's lives. Well, let me close then just with... Uh, uh, six closing uh, uh, practical applications. And I'll, I'll, I'll on, only mention them with the briefest of comments. Marvel, number one. Marvel at and praise God for his universal, unreserved, unrestricted call of the gospel. The good news of peace, of joy. Of, of forgiveness. Number two, be, beware of contentment without God. These are ominous, fearful words. In Hosea 4, uh, uh, 17, it, it says just six words. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. God will let you have your idols and you'll be content with them. But if, if he leaves you alone, it will, it will, it will uh, 
be followed by his words, depart from me, you cursed to the eternal fire, uh, pre pre prepared for the devils and his angels, Mark, Matthew 25, 41. And it's so good to be reminded, isn't it, dear people, that it's not our goodness, it's his greatness that we have, been, that we have a place at the table. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he, and, 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 and he said to me, these are the words of God. Our, our fourth application is being encouraged that it is not our imperfect righteousness that justifies us, but Christ's perfect righteousness is laid to our account. And, and the imparted righteousness that we have serves to prove our imputed righteousness given to us by Jesus, and it motivates us. And dear people, we too are sent by the King of Kings in all his wisdom and grace and love. We are his servants. We are sent. And to the assignment that you presently have, the reason you have it, whatever it is, God has sent you there. And you can rejoice in it. And you can glorify him there. And in the last place, uh, number six, we may be sent to take the gospel uh, uh, to some other needy place in the world. And our hearts need to be open for that. He's already done it with members of our church. Some of the best people we have have been sent. Or we will play a key role in being a sender, will be involved in missions with our resources, with our attention, and with our prayers. Well, may God add, add, he, add his blessing to these poor words by this unworthy preacher and bring the fruit out in our lives uh, that he wants us to have. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much and we praise you so much for, for the kind of God that you are. A giving, caring, generous, loving, inviting, welcoming God to sinners. You are absolutely stupendous. And we do pray that you will help us uh, to be your servants and to reach out to others, to, to, to reach out with family members, May these that are burdened for their grandparents and their parents see the salvation come. Don't leave them out, oh God. Please save these loved ones and save our children. Uh, some of us have lost children still and grandchildren. Oh, show them mercy, we pray. All for the glory and reward and pleasure of your matchless wonderful intercessory son. We pray it in the name of Jesus.
Amen.